You're listening to the Felony Inc. Podcast on the Startup Radio Network. The Felony Inc. Podcast explores ex-felons that have gone on to launch their own startups. We explore the ups, the downs, the behind-the-bar stories with these founders. The Felony Inc. Podcast airs live every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Pacific Time. My name is Mark Grimes, co-founder of Startup Radio Network. Now please settle in, enjoy. It's time for the Felony Inc. Podcast. Well, good morning, Portland. Here it is, back on Felony Inc. once more. Friday, every time, 10 o'clock. And in the studio is my sidekick, Mark Gailey, from Murder, Inc. downtown Portland. Howdy, and, uh, howdy. He's, uh, he's going through some hassles at work today, <laughs> but uh, I think he's going to work through them. Right, Mark? Yeah, we're not going to talk about that. <laughs> uh, I just want to take a moment to for the suffering attic out there. Much to it. Yeah, let's get over it, huh? Yeah, I've been going through some, some of those kind of problems with a friend of mine, too, who's... Uh, having some problems in life and uh it's hard it's hard when uh you're on the straight and narrow and you see your buddies or your family or whatever fall off it's uh it's not good i've been waiting for all on to kind of fall off <laughs> just to see how he reacts you know I, mean? I kind of wish you'd quit saying that i'm not gonna lie <laughs> it's probably not gonna it's probably not gonna happen he's can you get a little? I just want to see all on a little crazy one day. He's always so controlled and in, in you know command. I just want to see him fall off one you day. You do know and, that's why know. I get the big bucks, right? You do. That's yes. All this um, control. Oh, good. That brings <laughs> comes up. with a prize. You actually get paid for doing this. I, I need to talk to you about that loan. Oh yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh my God! I didn't even realize someone was getting paid here. Oh well. Well, hey, come on now. I'm that's here eight hours. Okay, so live on Facebook, Mark. You got anything coming up, uh, tattoo bus wise, anything like that? Um, we got a couple. Uh, I think we're doing the uh, Redwood Run. It's a biker rally, and um, the spring opener, the Abate Spring Opener up in Washington State, is coming up. There's a couple, and then we were planning some more. So, but we got two that are for sure. Well, good. You know, um, you, if you were smart. What you do is, not. <laughs> is you would recruit our guests to come down and get a tattoo, right? Mm. And on that subject, today's guests are Tony Veniza. Vesna. Vesna. Why didn't you tell me that all along, for Pete's <laughs> sakes? What's the origin of that? I, I don't know. I was you know, born in the trailer park. I'm not sure what happened before that. <laughs> Starts with a V and ends with an A. That's all you need to know. That's, wow. That's my old nickname, Trailer Park Mark. <laughs> trailer it's Park. It's all good. Mark. It's all good. In the hood. Hey, filming. And his uh, cohort, Ali um, Hirata. Hirota. Hirota. See, I'm getting everything wrong this morning, all on it. I'm just going to blame it on you this morning. I'll take it. Okay, good. Just like everything else he takes. Anyway, so welcome to the program. These guys are from a program right here in Portland. It's called 4D Recovery. And so what we're going to do is we're going to talk to them a little bit about that. It's a really fascinating program they got. I'm going to read a little absurd absurd here. Um, It says, 4D is the most innovative approach to helping young people uh, find recovery around. The fact that our entire staff 
are in recovery is what makes our program so attractive. And that is why over 600 young people show up every month. How do you guys handle that amount of people coming in? Well, you know, before we get into that, why don't we do this? Why don't we go back a little bit? Can you guys kind of give us some background on, you know, when you guys were uh, running around as kids and getting in trouble and, and kind of where all this stuff started for you guys? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, you know, like like I said uh, earlier when you, you know, mispronounced my name, which most people do, <laughs> um, uh, you know, I, I was born in Idaho and, um, you know, for me, you know, thinking about where the origins uh, of my addiction started, you know, I don't know, you know, was it all the trauma that I went through, you know, being a poor kid or or was it the fact that both sides of my family uh, have addiction problems, you know? And so, you know, for me growing up as a kid, uh, being born in Idaho and then moving out to Camas, Washington, uh, you know, um, you know, it was just like, it was difficult. I think a, a lot of people who are like me who go, you know, in and out of jail uh, have a similar uh, childhood experience where they're, you know, poor uh, and they have a lot of trauma and their parents use drugs and, you know, they don't do well in school and, and they get in trouble and they go on to make lots of mistakes and they kind of just get caught in this, you know, cyclical process of uh, getting in trouble, not understanding why and then continuing to uh, go down that road. So what ended up happening? So you experienced all this as a youth, and of course, you know, I did too, Mark did too, and um, not so sure about Alon, he's kind of a straight girl. <laughs> but, um, you know, a lot of people experience that. But on the other hand, a lot of people don't realize, you know, that they can take control of their lives. So go back a little bit, you got in trouble, you started getting in trouble. What were the kind of things that, that got you in trouble? Uh, well, using drugs, and, you know, I like to use drugs a lot, uh, you know, for whatever reason, uh, you know, using drugs and uh, partying uh, was far more important to me than, uh, you know, completing my homework or, uh, you know, staying in sports, um, you know, and so I just, I, you know, I really like to party. It made me feel good. I think, you know, part of it is uh, I had this genetic predisposition uh, to addiction. And then the other part is, is it just felt good, you know, when when you grow up and you're not getting a lot of love at, at home and, and, you know, you don't feel supported at home and you find, um, you know, identity in a culture that, that parties and using drugs to make you feel better. I think it for me it was just natural to, to pursue that as much as I, I could. And, uh, you know, I'm kind of just an extremist person uh, in whatever I do. And so... You know, when I chose to use drugs, I, I use it to the, you know, use them to the nth degree. So, how about you, Allie? Um, how did that? How was your childhood? How that? How that kind of shape your what you did as a young young lady? Well, um, you know, I started using when I was about eleven. Um, addiction also runs. In my family, um, I watched my mom struggle with that as I was growing up, and uh, I never knew how to cope with my feelings. Um, I'm half Japanese, and there is a lot of stigma in the Asian culture around addiction, and so it was really hard for me to talk about my feelings 
with that part of my family, let alone, you know, face my own feelings about my addiction. It was it was never something I was able to talk about. I felt out of place when I was growing up, and um, that was just the coping mechanism I have. I liked to party too. That was like something that I could just escape from, just by going out, and it just kind of escalated from there. So, obviously, both of you guys ended up getting in some trouble. Um, how did that eventually happen? Uh, well, I started, you know, I was in and out of treatment as a teenager until I was in my early 20s. Um, I just didn't get it. I didn't get what, you know, the problem with my use was. Um, I didn't have any other skills to help me through the trauma that I experienced. Um, and so that's just what I did. Uh, yeah. How about you, Tony? How did, what, what is it, uh, so you're doing drugs, you hang around the wrong people, you don't have a lot of support from your family, and so you eventually, you said you hadn't actually gone to prison, but you've been in the county jail quite a few times. Yeah, I, I you know, I, I managed not to go to prison, and I'm really grateful for that because, uh, I see what happens to people who go to prison and become institutionalized, you know, and, and they get out and they just keep going right back to prison for a long time. So for me, for whatever reason, you know, I just kind of skated by with these low-level crimes, um, you know, low-level convictions of, uh, uh, you know, possession and, and theft. But, you know, I started going to jail when I was about 13. Um, and and for me, compared to my family life, uh, there was kind of two things that happened. One is I didn't mind going to jail because to some degree it was better than living at my home. I lived in a very toxic, uh, you know, abusive house uh, with, my, with my stepfather who was uh, alcoholic. And, uh, and so I didn't really mind going to jail. And then hanging out in that culture, uh, going to jail and getting in trouble and committing crimes kind of give you a positive identity, which might sound weird to some people. But, you know, when you, go, when you grow up and you feel jaded towards, uh, towards society for not giving you the opportunities you think you're supposed to, to receive, you know, you see other people who come from more privileged families who have all the opportunities, who have cars, who seem like they get a lot of love, and you don't get that, you, you find a, a positive identity in yourself of being kind of antisocial, you know, and, and so for me, like getting in trouble, going to jail, you know, being tough, um, committing crimes, those were like honors that I wore, like a, like a badge on my chest, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so I didn't mind going to jail. Well, <clears throat> like I thought it was cool. Yeah, I, I, I kind of experienced the same thing as a youth. Yeah. And all the, all the guys I hung around with, you know, they were all committing some type of crime and getting caught on different, you know, stuff. And, and you're right, there is kind of a badge there that, uh, that you you're, you're tell your friends and your stories. Of course, you know, you know how it is when the fellows sit down and they, they start talking about what they've done, you know. Right, oh yeah. They had a, you know, they had a baggie with a little bit of dust in it and all of a sudden, you know, they had three pounds when they got busted. <laughs> yeah. You know how that goes. You know, and ten all those girlfriends stories. and four Ferraris. Yeah, oh, no, yeah. No. 
Right, Mark? That's been a minute. <laughs> Forgot about that. Yeah, but that's you know that's that's one of the things that just happens in that culture. But all in. So you ended up going uh, to jail. How many times? Oh God, dude, I don't know. I mean, uh, you know, when I when I got sober at twenty seven, uh, I have found I've you know caught felonies in uh, almost three states. I had warrants in three states um, that I had to clean up. You know, and I just went in and out of uh, jail from Washington to Oregon to Idaho and Utah for you know fifteen years, fourteen fifteen years, just in and out of jail. Never went to prison. Never went to prison. How does that? <laughs> I went to prison my first time. First time, I was like, bam, went to prison. I yeah. Know, some are sicker than others. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, just kidding. I don't, you know, I don't I thought know. it was cool, I guess. <laughs> I don't know why. I got lucky, I guess. You know what I mean? I got really lucky that I didn't go to prison. I might I might not be sitting here today if I went to prison. Things happen for a reason. You're here for a reason. Yeah. Same with you, Ali. You, know, you never really did any significant time, but... Obviously, with you guys, and like with us too, Mark, you know, and um, there's a point where you're like, you know what, this really isn't the life. So how did, what was the beginning of your coming out of that system and realizing that there was much more in life than that? I just lost all support. My, my whole network of people just did not have my back. Um, I caused a lot of wreckage in the lives of my friends and my family, and I, I didn't feel like I had one person that believed in me anymore, and I didn't believe in myself. So um, I had like a basically a coming to God moment the last time um, when I got arrested, and I, um, I didn't want to live that kind of life anymore. I had a lot of shame and guilt I carried around uh, and so it just kind of perpetuated itself until I finally just had a breaking point. So how, old, how old were you when that, when that happened? Let's see, it was in 2016. I was about 25 when it happened. 25. Yeah. How about you, Tony? Where, where, was, that, where was that point where you finally said, you know what, there's got to be something different? Uh, well, it was when I was 27, and I had got released from jail to go to this uh, treatment program uh, called Volunteers of America Men's Residential Program uh, here in Portland. It's a really good program. And I was, uh, I was sitting on the couch waiting to do my intake, and I was looking in at the cafeteria where everybody was eating, uh, and I got like a, a realistic view of who I was. I mean, you talked about having the little baggie of dope that was actually an ounce. You know, I had, I had built up a lot of dis delusion about who I was uh, for a long time, and a lot of that was founded on resentments towards people, and which allowed me to, you know, justify uh, my behavior. But I, I kind of just got like this realistic view, like almost like out of body experience where I saw myself for who I was, and it was kind of like, you know, you're just kind of like this pathetic dope fiend um, who doesn't have anything but some holy shoes and a ripped shirt from fighting with the police and uh, and for whatever reason though I, I like I found some hope peering into that cafeteria where I seen other men um, who had a little bit more recovery than me at that time in treatment and I thought like sh maybe I could just get that healthy like physically you know and that was kind of where it started for me like the hope of seeing somebody else do uh, something positive in their life who had who'd come from the same place as me. So that program you went to, what was the name of it again? Uh, uh, Volunteers of America Men's Residential Center. That's here in Portland? Yes, sir. 
So you said um, earlier, before we got on the show, is that uh, you finally took care of all yeah. of your warrants that you <laughs> yeah. had out there. Yeah. Now, how does that feel, man? I mean, uh, well, you know, it's it's kind of weird. It it feels good. You know, but at the same time, it's like I, I feel my old identity, like, leaving me. You know, like, I'm no longer, like, the dude who, like, hates the system, you know, and who is, like, hard. And so it's like I'm seven years in, and, uh, and, and who I am today is very different. You worked really hard to be hard. <laughs> yeah, I worked real hard to be hard, you know. But, but it's just weird. It's weird not to have no association with the, the Department of Criminal Justice anymore because it's been a, a part of my life for so long. I almost, like, miss it in a way. I don't know if that sounds kind of weird, you know, but it's like now I'm, like, really, like, kind of a square. You know? Well, that's the way it is, though. You it's know? hip to be square. I get it. Well, it's, it's a lot better than sitting at 9 by 9 That's true. So let's go back to that program that you got into. You know, yeah. um, I know that a lot of the people that we talked to on here, and in my case, it was the same way. And I know Dave had some people out there that that um, were kind of mentors. Somebody who you looked at, and like you were saying just a minute ago, you looked at those guys and they, you know, obviously it were working out and they had something physically going on. Right. But there's more than that. You know, it's the attitude. It's it's what they're doing, you know, how they hold themselves and what they're accomplishing for their lives that really impress you. you know, and you didn't know that at the time. You're looking at, you know, right. to you at the moment was somebody who is physically, you know, in shape. But all the other things have to come along for that to happen. Who, if anybody, was somebody in your life at that point that was able to impress you enough to move forward? Yeah, so I think, you know, uh, a big part of, of my story uh, and my success is um, for me to, to see other people who've been successful who uh, have had the same experience as me, right? Um, you know, one person in recovery helping another person. And so, you know, I got that first glimmer of hope by looking at the other guys in there who were physically healthy. And then uh, I got a lot of hope from the counselors, uh, a couple of the counselors that were in the treatment center, uh, two of which uh, were really important to me. One was my, you know, my one-on-one -on -one counselor. His name was Gordy, uh, and, and he was a former biker, uh, you know, meth cook. Reminded me a lot of my dad. It wasn't 240 Gordy, it was, was it? Yeah, it oh was, two, it was 240 Gordy. Oh, wow. And, and that dude was instrumental in changing my life because he came from a similar place as me, you know, and uh, he reminded me of, of my father, and... Um, he challenged me to be something different, and he was something different. And so when he told me that I could change and that it was possible, like, I really believed him, and I saw, you know, part of myself in him, and it gave me the motivation to change. And then there was this other counselor, and I cannot remember her name, but she was like, you could tell that she was like a tweaker before, and but she had got a master's degree. And I was, tweak? <laughs> yeah, and I was just like, you know what, like... She, and I, I could do it. You I know just want to say something. That's that's so awesome that because um, you know um, I was like nineteen or twenty when two forty Gordy was out there just running amok, <laughs> and every once in a while I'd, I'd seen him in prison a couple times. Mm -hmm. Back I think when we were in there, lad, and uh, to see that the think that I always thought that guy was done or you know whatever happened to him, he's just, that's awesome to know that he's doing good. Oh, he's doing so, so good. Yeah, I talked um, to him all the time. That's awesome. Well, maybe we could get him on the show sometime, all on. Yeah, uh, yeah, I could talk to him. All right, so you know he's running. He's running like a, a business with his dad right now, doing commercial uh, like refrigerators and um, 
I don't know, he, he like installs like kitchen sets for like huge commercial projects. He's making a ton of money, and he's awesome. Why do they call him 240 Gordy? 240Zs. Yeah. yeah, a couple of those 240Z Dotson 240Zs. I think. I think you got any of those still? I don't know. He's got a bike. He's got all sorts <laughs> of stuff. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 240 Gordy. Because there was like the 280Zs, but the 240 was a special edition. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that's what he was like notorious for having. So, like, you know what we're gonna do? All on. We are going to go to our first break, and we will be right back. CPA Dudes, where accounting is never boring. Their price is not based on time. Instead, customers decide what to pay them. They don't charge you for sending invoices, phone calls, emails, texts, or meetings. They just get the damn job done. Find them at cpadudes.com slash startupradio. Tell them Dave and Lad sent you, and we'll send you a very special surprise. Seriously, we will. Today's episode of the Felony Inc. podcast is brought to you by Publicize, a deconstructed PR subscription service which generates effective visibility for your business. Publicize handles all communications with the media and any content required to do this, such as press releases, editorial pitches, etc. And they offer a wide range of PR products and abilities out of which you can construct the PR package right for the future of your business. During the break, Tony asks us, she says, you know, I'm trying to hold back cussing, you know, but uh, you ought to hear Dave on this show. Oh, my goodness. He always writes in the script for, for me to say mf but I don't like to do it, but he writes it in there for me to say it. Mutterfucker. Yeah. I said it. Whoa. <laughs> He always does gonna, that. I'm not going to get fined by that. And he FCC. says, what is it, lad? And I'm like, mf um, <laughs> It's not a federal offense, right? <laughs> All Bad right, influence. So, so, you know, I know um, the effect of somebody who's been down the road that has turned their lives around and then um, gets on with their life in, in a way that it affects other people. You know, Dave Dahl of Dave's Killerbread, prime example. Yeah. I mean, look <clears throat> at this guy. Um, was the worst of the worst. If you, you look at his criminal record, you know, just like you, Tony, every time they arrested him, he fought with the cops, you know. And so here he is turning his life around and not even knowing it is such an inspiration to, every, you know, to so many people. Uh, he's an inspiration to me. He's an inspiration to Mark. Um, Mark, you know, is pretty much sucks up to Dave every time he's around. So. <laughs> it's, um, it's almost embarrassing. Well, I know? mean, it's like I think I'm so cool yeah. and then like, profound and intelligent, and I got these great. I, but it's like, here's this guy. It's like I don't know. He can challenge me on my little mental things, which is something you don't do, lad. Uh, all you do is all you do is reprimand me. No, well, you still got an old busted down '55 Chevy sitting in a, <laughs> on a parking lot. And you know how many people want to buy that? Well, sell it. I want to fix it up and put murder ink on it. Oh, for Pete's sake. Okay, so I have a place now. Move it. I have a place for the, for the bus and my 55 and my Corvette and my Harleys. Okay. <laughs> and your I, bus. What about your bus? I'm going to park that at my new house out oh. in St. Helens. You have a big bus? I have a, yeah, I have a 40-foot uh, tour bus. It's a tattoo shop on wheels. So it's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> a tattoo shop. It was a blessing. Wheels. It was definitely. Do you, do you give people tattoos while you're driving? Mm, no, <laughs> I'm not Steve-O. <laughs> that's a good idea, though. I guess I, I wonder if that's possible. That's a great idea, actually. Oh, 
Oh, wow. wow. You just gave I need, me an epiphany. I need a cover-up. You just gave me an epiphany. <laughs> hey, you know what, I'm Mark? You know how they have those buses that go um, from whatever city to Las Vegas? Yeah. You know, you, you, a bunch of people sign up, and you just basically give them a ride there, right? Mm-hmm. Well, you just use your bus for that. Instead, when you're on the way there, you're tattooing, tattooing people. Because you know what? What... What's, uh, you know, done in Vegas, stays in Vegas, right? Well, not this case. You're going to get a tattoo you're bringing at home. <laughs> uh, that's a great right. idea. So, you know, um, at one point, uh, you know, Dave sold a bakery where I was working at it. And uh, I went down to Eugene, where I'm from, and I went to work for this place called Sponsors. You Good know. program. That's kudos to sponsors and i seen what we were just talking about firsthand with me because i was a case manager there and these guys would come in and they would sit down with me they just got out of prison and we're trying to give them some advice on what to do and how to do it and you know the changing part of their life and the structure and they're like you know they would tell you well you don't know what i'm going through you've never been there well the fact is you know both me and Mark have been there. And when I told him, you know, hey, look, well, why do you say that? Well, you've never been to prison. You've never done those things. I said, well, I did 20 years in prison. And they were like, you're kidding me. Right. So, so that's, that's where you're at right now. You know, you've had the experience. Allie, she's had the experience. So one of the impressive parts of your the program that you're involved in is you say that everybody there is in recovery. Right. So everybody's been there, done that, and they have that perspective. Tell us a little bit about how you got involved in that program. Yeah, so, uh, you know, I'm a, co- I'm a co-founder of 4D. I'm not the original founder, and, uh, you know, I would really say that uh, there's a lot of people who really deserve credit uh, for what 4D has been able to accomplish. Um, you know, but I, I got involved. I was... Uh, I was in I was in VOA, uh, you know, at the treatment center we were talking about, and um, I started going to get my GED, and I got my GED at 27, and uh, I got some uh, scholarship money to Portland Community College, and I went there, and uh, you know, building on that hope I was talking about earlier, um, you know, I decided to go to school, and uh, when I when I went to school, there was this other little mini scholarship program for people in recovery, and they were they give you some free credits to go to this support group once a week. And it was in the Women's Resource Center, and there was this woman there who suggested that I should start, like, a club for people in recovery, and I did. Uh, and I started organizing at, at PCC, and um, I threw an event at 4D when it was very new. Uh, when it, Right after it just kind of started, I threw an event there for young people in recovery, and it was a very successful event. I'm a pretty good organizer. And the, the group of people who were organizing 4D at the time asked me if I would join the board. And this is in the very, very beginning. And so I did. And that's how I got started. You know, and I, and I volunteered on the 4D board. All of us did with no staff for a couple of years to get it off the ground, you know. And so, you know, serendipity, I don't know. I just ended up there trying to help people. They were trying to help people. Uh, and, and our worlds collided. And then uh, I decided to get on board with it. And Ali, how did you get involved? You guys, we talked about that at the break too. That you guys are a couple. Mm-hmm. Did you guys meet there? How did you? How did that all happen? Now we didn't meet at Forty. Where do we meet at? <laughs> Here we go. Uh, Online dating site. I think. Uh, <laughs> the sky was blue. No, it was gray. <laughs> Tinder. Tinder really works. So, <laughs> when Forty was started, I was still running around um, in my addiction. So I was 
you know, I wasn't involved in that whatsoever. I did actually, when it was 40, used to be at this huge warehouse. Um, and there were so many people there. It was like I just got out of treatment. And I went to this meeting I heard about that had tons of young people because that's what I was looking for was like a community of young people that could I could relate to that could relate to me. And so that was one of the first meetings I went to when I got out of treatment. So um, that was my first experience with 4D. And my lovely boyfriend here and I, we met through a dating site. Oh, my God! And it just so happens that... You know, we were both struggling addicts, and we're in recovery, and that was that. That's yeah. how that's how me and Mark met too, yeah. <laughs> through a, a dating site. Do you remember the name of that dating site? Yeah, Mark? it's called OSP D Block. <laughs> D Block After Hours. After Hours. <laughs> D Block After Hours. All right, all on. D- hey, thought we weren't going to say anything about that. No. Oh, did I say something? I'm sorry. <laughs> You're speaking out loud All right. again. So you guys um, met here. So now, obviously, Ollie is becoming more involved with the program as you are. What is your official um, title there? Uh, Ian, I'm the I'm the executive director. Executive, executive director. director. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And then, are, do you have a title there? I'm the executive director's girlfriend. Ooh, <laughs> nice. <laughs> Nice, Mark. Take some clues from that one. She just does him. <laughs> That's Someone's awesome. Gotta Someone's got to do it. But you're also involved with yeah, the program, I'm, I right? Yeah, I volunteer and mm-hmm. front desk sometimes. So, is this a full time thing, or do you guys have regular jobs? And then this is no. A- I mean, this is you know, I get paid to to run it in in 4D since uh, since I took over the executive director role. We went from having a you know, no, no paid staff and, you know, a very small budget, you know, and, and uh, if everything works out this year um, with some of the contracts I have, uh, you know, proposals that I have with other counties, you know, we'll be up to over a million dollar a year budget. Nice. So, and we'll have like, you know, 10, 15 paid staff. So um, is it too soon to ask about actually what the program program covers? Like, is it housing, sure. funding, social stuff is what I believe I read about. It was yeah. So social you know, I, I th- at the, at the, at the base and the philosophy uh, it, it is really, um, you know, the, the philosophy is really driven uh, from Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, and Narcotics Anonymous. That one person in recovery can help another person recover, right? And that's been going on for a very long time, and it's been really successful. Uh, AA and in twelve step meetings and mutual help groups have proliferated all over the, you know, over the world. Um, and uh, so that's what 4D is fundamentally. Um, now uh, the state of Oregon and, and you know the larger healthcare profession field across the nation has, has said, okay, yeah, this this thing really works. This one person helping another through shared experience, and so they've kind of professionalized that, and they've, they're called peer mentors, recovery coaches, stuff like that. So that's who we employ. You know, we employ recovery coaches, um, you know, recovery mentors, uh, and that's what you have to have to work there. Uh, and so everybody there is a recovery mentor. Now, a recovery community center is what 4D is, the main part of 4D. And and basically, the difference between treatment and a recovery community center is treatment center you go to and the treatment clinicians tell you what you're going to do. And when you graduate, and, and it's very linear in fashion, and there's a, a clear entry and a clear exit, right? And it's time limited. Well, a recovery community center 
is not professional. There's people who work there who want to support you, and you come and go as much or as little as you want for as long as you want, right? And, and the goal is retention, not completion. The goal is retention at the Recovery Community Center. And the way you retain people is you have peer mentors there who can help someone if they want it or not. You don't have to. So you could, you know, get with me and I could say, hey, what's going on with you? Um, you know, perfect example, a guy walked in yesterday. He just heard about us on the street. He's from, uh, he's from like, um, I don't know, one of the coastal towns in, in Oregon, but Seaside or something. But he just came in. He's, he's homeless. You know what I mean? And it's like he doesn't know what to do, but he wants to get clean. He heard we could help him. And so we just started helping him. You know what I mean? That's that's a question I was I was going to ask you. You know, where do most of your referrals or your clients come from? Yeah. So, you know, uh, about 35 percent comes from the recovery community. Uh, a lot of people come from treatment. Um, we get some referrals from the criminal justice system, but we don't take any mandated clients. You know, people only come to 40 if they want to, you know, and, and so they can come there to get the peer mentor like I was talking about. They come there for meetings, so we have lots of meetings throughout the week, various 12-step meetings. We have, like, yoga. We have a gym in the back. Um, people can hang out and play pool, play video games. Uh, we have big events and dances and hip-hop battles and twerk-offs and, you know what I mean, everything that anybody could ever want. We're, we do Dungeons and Dragons there. You know what I mean? Where are you Whatever. located? Uh, 3807 Northeast MLK, so right in North Portland. Is there something that's nearby? It's like yeah, Lloyd's in between okay. Lloyd Center and Portland Community College. Oh, that's convenient. Yeah, yeah. very. And so we have that piece right <clears throat> where people are coming to socialize and to hang out. Some people get peer mentors. Uh, you know, about 180 people last year got a peer mentor, and we help people get housing, figure out how they're going to stay clean. So that's housing. That's a big de- deal with a lot of people. I see um, <clears throat> stability. A lot of people want to get clean, but they can't get a house, and they end up. Um, I've seen this right downtown all the time. People I know, it's like I, you know, they're like, oh, I'm out here. I'm just gonna. I've seen this one guy. It's a friend of mine. Time and time again, it's the the housing thing. Yeah, um, you know, and and you know, everybody knows there's a housing crisis in Portland. I mean, I make decent money. I don't make like a ton of money, but I make decent money, and it's hard for me with having a couple kids and stuff to to purchase a home. And so somebody who's just entering the workforce making minimum wage is not going to buy a house. I and just moved, have, and it just cleaned out my bank account. It did, huh? Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> and so uh, recently we opened up a 19-bed house, our first recovery house um, for men. Uh, so we opened that up in February, you know, and people can live there. They got to pay for rent. Everybody's got to pay, but it's, you know, four seventy five a month. And then you got to do some sort of recovery. Uh, you got to meet with a recovery mentor as little as much as you want. <clears throat> and then, uh, you know, we'll, you know, they have like event organizer there at the house. There's other leadership positions. And then, you know, they participate in 4D. <clears throat> and the cool thing about 4D is that when I, when I was at, uh, Portland Community College, I got into student, student government and I became student body president and stuff. And it, through that experience, it shifted kind of who I am and what I value. And, you know, I went from being like wanting to be an engineer and stuff to wanting to be a community organizer and an advocate and to change legis- legislate legislation and to participate, uh, you know, in the political sphere. And so I got to bring that with me to 4D. And, and so 4D not only provides these services to young people where, you know, 600 people or more come a month uh, to get recovery support, but we've also been able to identify gaps in the system. Uh, one thing that we've helped start 
uh, is the Recovery High School Initiative to start a recovery high school for teens because we were serving teenagers and we, and we were learning that it's not a very good practice to mix teenage women with older adults. <laughs> you know, it's not it's not good. And there's there was uh, exploitation happening and stuff and abuse. And so we're like, we need something for teenagers. You know, they need something. And in Oregon, we have the highest rates of uh, addiction and the lowest rates of access to recovery. So compared to the other 50 states, we are dead last in, in recovery. That's we, have a, we have an F. And part of the problem is is the government doesn't <clears throat> uh, do a good job. <laughs> it's really what it is. Uh, and so we also help start this thing called Oregon Recovers, which is a statewide ad- advocacy group. And, and we're doing great work across the state to create a strategic plan that would address the... Uh, you know, the deficiencies in the government around the addiction epidemic. Uh, and we're making great work moving forward. And so, you know, through the nonprofit, we've not only got to really serve the young people in our mission, but we've got to bring people in recovery together uh, and organize to kind of, you know, do this recovery reformation, um, you know, initiative across the state. Are you guys uh, going into the juvenile facilities? We So we used to. We used to work with teenagers a lot more. But, you know, over time we learned that, hey, you know, it's too broad. It's too it's too broad for us to work with adolescents, uh, young adults and adults. And so, like I said, we help start the recovery high school initiative, which really is more than just a recovery high school. It also has um, this thing called the APG, which is an alternative peer group. And it's a it's a treatment modality for teenagers. And it's really what Oregon needs to start incorporating if we're going to address the addiction issues uh, among teens, you know, because teenagers are very different than adults, you know, and when you take a teenager out of high school and you put them into treatment and then you put them back into the same high school, the chance that they are going to have a recurrence of use is very, very high because you haven't changed their environment because they're so, they're so influenced by their peers and by their environment compared to like older adults who are like, you know, still like influenced by their peers, but the peer pressure isn't as strong as as for teens. Would you would you call that earlier um, your social identity or something? You said earlier the thing that's something that clicked with me. Yeah, yeah, like the way you you know your identity. I mean, teenagers really forming their identity into transition age youth. Uh, and I think about my own experience. You know, if I would have put, if I would have some for, sort of intervention that wasn't punitive, right? If I wouldn't have just been sent to jail over and over and again for my behavior, and someone was like, "Hey, I'm in recovery. There's this place where you can go to hang out with other young people in recovery. There's a solution. You're not bad. You know, there's an opportunity for you to change. My life could be different. Maybe I wouldn't spend so much time in jail. And so I think <clears throat> for me and for 4D and for people in recovery and the advocacy work we do. Uh, at the basis of it is uh, how do we create more opportunities for people to change? So you, um, so we had a, a guest on. He's he's a friend of mine and Mark's, and, and Dave is uh, name's Monta Knudsen. I know Monta. Yeah, it's my and dude. He's the uh, director of Bridges to Change. Yeah, he's awesome. So you know these big ones that are already out there. How how do you uh, work with them? Yeah. So you know the, the great thing about Bridges to Change is is it's a peer run organization, same as 4D, and all that means is that the people who run it are in recovery and they have a life experience. And so, you know, when you, so 4D was really, really cool in the beginning, right? Because a startup is all about the mission, right? And uh, especially with a nonprofit, it's all about the mission and helping people and you get the synergy and, and you're building and it's really awesome. But then you get to a point where it's a business, right? And so now I'm running a business and a business, standing a startup, it can be difficult you know, and so I've had to learn how to, you know, run a business and, and compete in a market that doesn't get a lot of money already. <clears throat> and so the cool thing about Monta 
is that Bridge to Change has been well established for a long time, <clears throat> and he took over as executive director. And there's only so much money out there for what we do, right? Federal or like federal dollars, <clears throat> state dollars, county dollars. The cool thing about Monta is that I can work with him to say, hey, look, you know what? I think this contract would fit me really well. You know what I mean? And so, like, I would apply for it to get it. And I could be like, hey, Monta, I don't have these policies and procedures, right? And he would be like, oh, hey, let me get them for you, like with the recovery house. They just sent me all of their policies and procedures and, you know, everything so I can be in compliance with the law and stuff. And I got to take all that stuff and build my program. So Monta, you know, Bridge Change kind of been like a mentor in some ways to me, which has been really nice. I, I love him dearly. He's a great guy. Oh, he is. He's a great guy. Yeah. You know, that, that's something I'm, I'm always, you know, interested in is that, you know, fundraising. You, you raise funds, <laughs> yeah. you write, you know, stuff to, to get different funds. Uh, how do you even get into that? I mean, to begin with, you know, you're just trying to do something good. And then all of a sudden, you know, you got to write for a grant or whatever. How, where does that experience come from, I and mean, where do you get that from, and how do, how do you go about doing that? Well, you know, for me, it, it's been a, a learning curve. So, you know, I got into the work thinking like, hey, this is like a no-brainer. We should fund recovery services, right, to help people stay clean, and then we're going to have all of these other benefits in society. You know, we're going to have increased economic productivity, decreased, you know, recidivism, decreased health care costs, increased uh you know, parental reunification, stuff like that, you know? And uh, I found that it wasn't like that for everybody else. There's a lot of stigma out there, you know? And so there wasn't a lot of funding for what I do. Um, and so most of uh, the money that I get from fundraising, I fundraise about one hundred fifty to $200,000 a year to run the organization. And most of it comes from people in recovery, honestly. So I do it in two, two different ways. Um, you know, people who donate through the website, sustainable donors, people who donate every month and stuff, and then I have a big gala, you know, and so this year uh, in November, we'll have like a gala event where we'll bring everybody together. Um, we'll do some sort of performance and emotional appeal, and then we'll ask people to donate. We'll gather sponsorships and stuff. And, and I got to say that it's kind of fucked up that recovery support services and treatment services have to fundraise money to provide services that save people's lives because you, you don't ever see fucking galas for dental dentist office or doctor's offices. They don't have to go fundraise money to provide services. They just get to, right? They get funded through the government. They get funded through insurance, but recovery support and treatment doesn't. And I think it just exemplifies the stigma associated with addiction. That's, that's awesome. Um, <laughs> you know, right? I'm really impressed. But you know what we got to do? Take a break. We'll be right back. <laughs> Support for today's episode comes from our friends at Ruby Receptionists. At Ruby, they've mastered the art of turning rings into relationships. Their team of remote receptionists answer all of your calls live as if they're right there in your office. And with Ruby's mobile app, you easily control just how they screen, transfer, and take your messages. Start setting your business apart today. Visit callruby.com slash startup radio to sign up or better yet, call them at 833-861-8100 and use promo code STARTUPRUBY. Tell them Dave and Lad sent you and you get a $150 credit. $150, Mark. What would you do with 150 bucks? Mm, I wouldn't gamble it. <laughs> <laughs> I think you would. Maybe. Like you might pay somebody to clean up your shop after that devastating night. Uh, I'm out, actually, I already got a, I already got a Code Red a team already en route in place. Nice. 
All right, Tony, you know, I, I also read something uh, on your website and, you know, talking about donations and getting money from people or from organizations or whatever. Um, I see that uh, you guys got like $44,000 from a place in Gresham. Oh, yeah, Gresham Subaru. Shout out to my, my boy Nick Smith out there and the whole Gresham Subaru team. They've donated uh, over the last four years almost $200,000. Wow. To organization. So and that's to the Share the Love event. Um, you know, Gresham Subaru does a Share the Love event every year uh, between like December and January where anyone who buys a car gets to donate, I think, $250 to a nonprofit of their choosing. And we've been the local nonprofit for Gresham Subaru uh, for the last four years. And wow, so they, that's great. They, they raised us 23000 this year. Wow. Which has been really cool, yeah. Did you get to raise your own salary? Uh, <laughs> Just uh, kidding. <laughs> you know, I don't know. I Maybe would. I should. <laughs> I would. No. I would be happy to donate some tattoo gift certificates if you ever do any kind of galas or something. Yeah. Boom. Yeah, People, I got you. you can, I don't know if you guys raffle or... Yeah, we do, yeah. I got you. I think you may, you may have donated to us already. I don't know. But you I've, know, I've donated to recovery things a lot. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. Don't disencourage him now. No, yeah, it's, <laughs> I have already. <laughs> you no, know, it's win win. Well, last year, yeah, so I think, you know, it's time to up, up the ante. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Good save. Okay, it's going to go from 25 to 2750. <laughs> <clears throat> you know, and Dave, Dave, if he's listening, uh, is going to be pissed off at me because, you know, we have a band. Right. It's uh-huh. called the Killer Granddaddies. I know. It's so cool. And, uh, <laughs> it's it's cool. my favorite band. <laughs> yeah. And uh, Weird. you say that sometimes you have a gala and you have, you know, entertainment or whatever. Yeah. So maybe you could hit us up sometime down the road. Yeah. If we're yeah. not too busy, we'll come and, uh, you know, we always raise a lot of money, not only the band, but then after the band plays, uh, we raise more money uh, by telling everybody uh, that Dave will take his shirt off, you know, for 50 bucks. <laughs> <laughs> I was, no. telling, I was checking I'll him out. A, He's pretty fit. You know, I'll be a roadie. He's, yeah. Yeah, I'm telling you. Yeah. That guy's a gorilla, man. <laughs> Am I a roadie or a groupie? <laughs> a groupie? Group, group roadie? I don't know. I love you, He's man. a grody. A grody. <laughs> a grody. <laughs> All right, so you're ta- we were talking earlier about how um, everybody that's on the staff there yeah. is, you know. They're all in recovery. In recovery. Yeah, it's tough. Um, so that's a kind of a prerequisite to, to get a job there. and um, Oh, it is. And the, the interesting thing about that is, so I was interviewing uh, this woman last week, and um, she's been denied employment like several times, right? And, uh, and so she was nervous to share her criminal history with me, and she doesn't understand that, like, it's a good thing. Like, you know, somebody who has, like, a criminal history can connect with somebody else, you know what I mean? And so, you know, it was interesting for her to be, like, nervous and me be like, no, that's good. That's good that you committed these crimes in there, a way. <laughs> you you know? got to see that, like, you know, their eyes light up oh, for yeah. the first time. I mean, think about it. You know, they're out there <laughs> paint, pounding the pavement. Can't get They've a job. been turned down over and over. And then they sit in front of you and you're like, oh, no. You you have to have been there, done that. Yeah. Or I'm like, that's it. That's all you got. <laughs> and they're they're just sitting there, probably with their mouth open, going, yeah. "What? I yeah. think I think I found the right place." And you know, when you hire people like that, that uh, that have just been denied over and over, you find that you have a very determined, very dedicated staff member, you know, yeah. coming on because you know they're like, "Man, I better not mess this off because there's really no other opportunities out there for me." Plus. 
this is an employer that gave me a chance when nobody else would. Right, and you know, in, in places like 4D and Bridges to Change, you know, you know, and uh, Mental Health Association of Oregon, and other uh, places that employ peers, you know, or people with uh, lived experience who are in recovery, they they really build on this uh, this idea of Alcoholics Anonymous, where you know people find purpose and meaning in their life um, by helping others, right? I, so I think for me, growing up, I didn't I didn't find a lot of value in myself because I didn't have a lot of material things that other people did, you know, uh, and, and I had a really, you know, disenchanting childhood where I, you know, I became very jaded towards society. And, uh, and after I got into recovery, um, you know, I found that my greatest gift or, you know, my greatest strength and what made me feel the best was helping other people. And I think that's true for a lot of people in recovery, right? Giving back, helping others kind of helps us get out of ourselves a little bit. And so, you know, employment opportunities that like 4D, I think really help people in recovery get to that five-year mark. So something I've been learning from a business perspective is that I'm going to get employees uh, who got two years sober and they're going to be peer mentors, but they're going to be working on their professional lives, right? They're not going to be wanting to do this forever. And so I understand that I have them for a limited amount of time. And so I, I want to create, um, you know, uh, an employment philosophy that, that helps people learn a lot of skills, uh, but then also helps them get to the five-year mark because the research shows that if somebody gets to the five-year mark of, of abstinence, their chances of, um, you know, having a recurrence of use drops to like 15%. Wow. Well, you know what, Tony, Allie, it was great having you guys on the show today. Uh, we just got a few minutes left. If you guys want to say anything to hopefully your group that's out there listening to you and maybe tell us how to get a hold of you or whatever, um, kind of give us your website, Facebook, all that good stuff. Yeah, so, uh, you know, I think first and foremost, if you're out there, you know, listening, I heard that uh, this podcast gets broadcasted in prison. You know, I would say that you can change your life at any time. Just find the people that are going to help you. My, my story of success is not because I'm so good. It's because I've had a lot of support of people around me, and, and I've worked hard, and I haven't given up on myself, and, and, I, and I found a lot of purpose in helping others. Uh, if you want to get in contact with me, uh, you can go to our website, www the number four, the letter D, recovery.org, or you could just call me at 503-734-0474. Keep your head up. What does 4D stand for? The Fourth Dimension Recovery Center. So in the a big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, Bill Wilson, who f- founded Alcoholics Anonymous, describes the experience of one person helping another person overcome uh, alcoholism as being rocketed into the fourth dimension. And so that's what we try to help Very other good. people do. Very good. Ali, thank you so much for being on. Yeah, thank you so much for having us today. And you guys, you know, you're welcome to come back on anytime. We really appreciate you. And that's the end of this podcast of Felony Inc. We will see you next week right here at 10 o'clock. You're listening to the Startup Radio Network. Listen, learn, launch. 10% of our gross revenue goes directly to women entrepreneurs in developing countries around the world through Kiva's microfinance program.